Yes, welcome to week four of A Journey Home. Here we go. Some of you went to your small group this past week, and I saw pictures already online from some of you. You got inked. If you got a tattoo this week and you put it on, go ahead and show it to me right now. Some of you, you're going to have to have tickets to the gun show to show me because you did one of these numbers right here. That's great. I see some of those. Some of you are holding up the tattoo. You haven't quite applied it yet. I put mine on right here. I actually said to my small group on Monday night, you know, I'm part Wookiee. I'm going to have to find a spot that does not have hair on my arms. And I found this little spot right here on my wrist. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, maybe you're not in a small group, we've got these little tattoos that have a heart, and it says, Dad. And this week, last night, I'm sitting uh, with uh, some friends, and uh, we're having dinner together. And every time I'm, like, cutting something or I look down, I see this on my wrist, and it reminded me... Daddy loves me most. Well, that's really not true. Daddy also loves you most. And our Heavenly Father loves you most. And he, lo he loves all of us most. It's just a simple, easy reminder that our Father in heaven, oh, he loves. This has been a good journey for many of us to let go of something and to embrace more truth in our lives of who our Heavenly Father is, this week is no different. This week, we're taking a bit of a turn. I, I listened to a podcast yesterday. Actually, let me back up just a little bit. A few days before that, I, I was taking uh, my daughter. I, I, I've got kids. Some of them are starting to adult right now. And I took my daughter to her small group where she got her tattoo. And, um, you know, great conversations, I'm sure, that happened there. She didn't tell me any of them. What happens in small group stays in small group. But I picked her up afterwards, and it dawned on me as I'm picking her up from her group, she's talking about me in there today. We're talking about our parents. We're talking about our families of origin. She's, she's probably talking about me. Oh, my goodness. So she gets in. I, babe, does this conversation... Is it make it, do I make it weird? Well, a little bit, Dad. But we had a good conversation as we talked about. And here's the thing. Don and I are not perfect parents. We're not. We've done the studies. We've read the books. But we're so far from perfect parents. We struggle with this idea of being an orphaned child as well. And I'm sure that there's some baggage that my kids carry because, well, I've put it there for them. None of us are perfect. We were all born into a sin condition. We're broken people. Our parents were broken and they hurt us. And we've been processing that together in our groups. But we as kids, we're broken. And we hurt our parents. And we probably should be processing some of that as well. Just yesterday, I was listening to this podcast. His name is Sky Jatani. He was an older uh, editor of Christianity Today. And uh, he's talking, he's interviewing actually uh, a well-known Christian uh, author. You might know his name, Philip Yancey. He wrote a book years ago that had a profound impact on my life. He's written prolifically a whole bunch of books, but he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. They're talking about that book and all kinds of other stuff. And Sky Jatani, his grandpa apparently was a psychiatrist, and he used to say this, Show me a child that has never suffered, and I'll show you a shallow adult. I 
thought that was an interesting statement. And all day long, I was kind of chewing on that. And I was bouncing it off of another statement. I've heard people say, well, pain is pain. Maybe you come from a childhood where you had great parents and you don't walk out with some big dysfunction. But pain is pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Your pain, maybe it's a 10 and mine's a 1 or vice versa. But pain is pain. And all day long, I was kind of wrestling with that. We're all working on something right now. We're all working on these orphan tendencies that we've been talking about. Let me catch you up. Week one. Week one, we looked at the promise of home. What's it look like to be at home? And we looked at how the Bible says, first few pages of Scripture, we're orphaned children. Sin enters the picture. Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve. Our physical ancestors, Adam and Eve. And the whole rest of the Bible is us trying to get back home to get the key to our inheritance, a journey home. Week two was all about know your dad. What do you think God is like? And we wrestled through some misconceptions of our identity, how we view our God. But at some point, we have to stop navel-gazing. We have to stop looking at our earthly parents and blaming them. At some point, we have to look at the ultimate model. This is God himself. This is the journey we're on. Week three, it's all about trusting. Trust your dad. Who are you depending on? In other words, will I trust God to be who he said he is? Week four, this is this week. This is return home. And we're going to look at the question, what does it look like to return home? We want to leave today having taken a turn to feel this tangibly. Because when we come to a place where we start recognizing that God approves of us, well, I have a dad in heaven. A heavenly father whose arms are open wide and he approves of me. This impacts the way I live right now. So I have four observations for you. If you've got that journal that Jimmy was talking about just a minute ago, grab that, pull it out, and you've got a space in there to take some notes in week four. I would encourage you to write some of this down. You might even process some of this later with your small group. Four observations today on this idea of returning home. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write this down. All of us are naturally separated from our Father. I don't just mean before you became a Christian. I don't just mean before you made that decision to ask Jesus to be Savior of your life. That moment you joined him in the waters of the baptistry and he became Lord of your life. I don't mean just before then. Of course, you're naturally separated from God, our Father, then. But I mean even now. Here's why. Because we still live in a fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, the whole thing shifted sideways. We live in a fallen world and we get some of the stink of that on us. We don't act right. We don't speak right sometimes. Even after we've been redeemed, we have bad motives sometimes. We don't have all the discipline that we need. We judge other people sometimes. Everyone, even all the way back in Bible times until today, all of us are naturally separated from our Father. And we can feel that, 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 that disconnect if we lean into it and think about it just a bit. We're tempted to think, well, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. You must be talking about other people. I've always been in a right relationship with God. Well, maybe not. Maybe you're just a bit deluded right now. Not if you're following the God that's in the Bible that talks about reality all the time. You might actually have a lot in common with the folks that Jesus pushed back on all the time. If you're kind of in denial over there, 
You might be like the folks that Jesus, he, he had some pretty harsh words to say to the religious folks. The folks who were always in church. The folks who would say, well, I've always known God. I've always been walking with God. You know, they were the kind of people who always gave to their church. They volunteered in, in social things in the community. They volunteered maybe in the United Way or the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Many of these folks were not able to see the reality, though, about themselves. That there's some brokenness there. That all of us are naturally separated from our Father because we live in a fallen world and we get some of that stink on us. So Jesus gives this truth in three different ways. Art uses this strategy. Advertising definitely uses this strategy. Maybe you've taken a, a speech class, maybe in high school or in college, and the, the teacher or the professor has talked to you about the rule of threes. It goes like this. You tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. This is the rule of threes. And if you look at advertising, you see it all the time. I... Uh, I was literally sitting working on my message. I've been doing this thing where I try to once a week leave my office here in the building and go somewhere else. And it's been so fun. I like, I'll study next to the Monon Trail downtown Carmel and I've bumped into some of you down there as you're walking or as you're, as you're eating at a restaurant. I've done the same thing downtown Noblesville. I've done the same thing downtown Fishers. The only prerequisite is that there has to be a good strong Wi-Fi signal because my Bible study tools I use, I can get at them online. And I've gotten out there and I've done some studying kind of out in the community. I was doing this the other day and I ordered some takeout food. I was hungry. Went and picked up my sushi realized I needed something to drink, walked into the gas station that's right there. I, I swore off soda pop about three years ago. And so I've discovered I really like this carbonated water. I call it fizzy water. My kids make fun of me when I call it that, but that's what I call it. Just a little bit of flavor, but it's just water and it's got some carbonation in it. Usually you can't find that in the gas station, but this gas station, oh my goodness, they had all the stuff to choose from, including a product I had never seen before. This will give you some insight into my personality. The name of it, I've got a picture of it here, it's called Liquid Death. And I stood there and I looked at that and I thought, wait a minute, they're charging $2 for that. That's, that's just water, right? I mean, this just fancy marketing I'm spending 2 bucks for. I bought it. I paid $2 for it just to discover if I was right. I was right. And quite honestly, it's not delicious water. It's just a little bit flat, no flavor, and it's just carbonated water. And I'm sitting there, and I'm eating my sushi, and I'm drinking my liquid death. And I see the rule of threes right here on the back of this can. This infinitely recyclable can of stone-cold sparkling water came straight from the Alps to murder your thirst. <laughs> tell them what you're going to tell them. And then it tells the story when a group of teenagers, they go and they find this. They're hunted by an aluminum can of mountain water, dead set on murdering their thirsts and recycling their souls, you tell them. And then once cracked open, they tell them what they've just told them. It's the rule of threes right there on the back of this stupid murder can of water. Jesus is frustrated with the religious elite. The people don't see the reality of the world around them. He's following the rule of threes. And he tells three stories. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 5. Let's point these out to you right now. I'm sorry, Luke 15. I said 5, I meant 15. He tells here some separate but similar messages. He tells a story about a woman with 10 coins. She loses one. She turns her house upside down to find, well, she's still got nine, but she looks for the one. She goes after that one that's lost. 
Jesus tells him what he's going to tell him. Then he tells a story about a shepherd with 99 sheep. Actually, he started with 100. He loses one. He goes after 99. Leaves the 99 behind. He goes after the one because Jesus has a compassion. He has a heart for that person that's separated from him. God cares about those that are disconnected. Everyone is spiritually disconnected from God in and of our own orphanness. Jesus leaves the 99. He goes after the one. This group of people is listening in to this series of stories. He tells them another one. We know it as the story of the prodigal son. I told this story a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to go into some greater depth today. We're going to unpack it just a little bit more. I told you two weeks ago, it's better known as the story of the man that has two sons. Because the focus of the story isn't just on the prodigal. There's two sons that are far from God. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. This is the longest story that Jesus ever told. It's the pinnacle of this trifecta, and we're going to go into some more detail. It's it's found in other spiritual traditions as well. Let's read it together. I'm in Luke chapter 15, begin with verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, not prodigal son, Two sons. The younger one, this one's the prodigal, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Took it, cut it in half. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, I'll tell you what. I've got five kids. If any one of my five kids came to me and said, Dad, I don't want you. I just want your money. First of all, the joke's on them. I don't have any money. I've been blowing it all on liquid death. (laughs) Second of all, I would be profoundly hurt. That would be crushing news to me. Dad, I'd rather have your money than to have you. I'd rather be away from you and on my own. Many of us, spiritually speaking, we say the same thing, don't we? God, I'd rather have your blessings than your presence. God, I'd rather have a handout from you than to get to gaze into your face. God, I'd rather have spiritual nice feelings from you than to get to embrace and be a part of your full character. This is natural. This is normal for spiritual orphans. We'd rather have the perks of God than the actual identity of God. The young man comes to his dad and says, give it to me now. Chop it in half. I'll be on my way. And God, he accommodates this. This is a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So the father in this story represents God. He does this. This is weird. God actually accommodates the request. If my kids came to me and asked me to do that, I'd say, well, no, get a job. No, you can't have your inheritance now. You have to wait until I die for that to happen, and it's not going to be much because I'm spending a lot of money on murder water. (laughs) But our, our Heavenly Father has a different character than me. And my normal earthly tendencies, he gives the young man his inheritance. And the young man, the son, he takes it, and he blows his money. Maybe you've read the story on wine and women and song. And he finds himself one day eating with pigs. The text literally says he comes to his senses. Let's unpack that just a little bit. In Jewish culture, pigs, well, they're kind of a big deal. Here's the thing. Bacon gives pigs too much of a good reputation. 
You know what goes good with bacon? A side of bacon. That's right. Everything. And while we're at it, a nice smoked pork loin or a pork chop. I, I love, I'm getting a little bit hungry, I love pork. But don't anthropomorphize pigs like we do with teddy bears, right? They'll, uh, they'd rather kill you and eat you then cuddle you, those grizzly bears that we have a stuffed animal of on our bed. The same is true of pigs. I snapped this photo a few years ago. If you're curious what's that coming out here, that's not the sunlight. That's actually, I don't know, that pig has just sneezed or blown chunks. I don't know what he's doing there. This is a picture that I took. There, there's a close-up of that same snout. This is the family farm back in Missouri. I was on, hunt, on a hunting trip, and I snapped this photo. Pigs are disgusting, vile creatures. This ring right here, this is an organic farm, and so they're outside their whole lives rather than living inside like a lot of livestock these days. And this, this is to keep them from rooting in the dirt because they're absolutely, well, they're just, just destructive animals. I worked on a hog farm for seven years, all through high school and college. I'm a bit of an expert on this. We moved shortly after I finished my job on the farm. I got married, started doing ministry. Actually, we'd moved twice. It was like 10 years later, I found my pliers that I used to carry on the farm in a leather sheath. 10 years later, guess what? They still smelled like pigs. Pigs are disgusting. They actually, if they knock you down out in the wild, they'll kill you. You could Google it later. There have been documented story after story after story of pigs savaging people. Pigs are nasty animals. This young man, he, he comes to his senses. Well, let's read it, Luke chapter 15. He's far away from the father. When he comes to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm literally feeding animals that I can't eat because of the dietary codes that I choose to live by. I will set out and go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, this is his internal monologue, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like, like one of your hired men. Some of us, we're coming to our senses during this journey. Some of us are recognizing that the behaviors that we've taken on are really not our identity. And yet another piece of success is not making us feel more at home with God. A lot of our vices are trying to accommodate a black hole that we have. The young man comes to his senses and here's what he does. He confesses. We've been making a lot of confessions in this journey. You've been writing them down as you've journaled a bit in your, in your guide, and you've been talking about some of those as you share with your small group. We've been making confessions all the way along the trip. He confesses, the son confesses to himself, and then check this out. He makes the journey home to confess to his father. Confession is a big deal. It's a big part. It's a key ingredient, you might say, in the journey home. This action step is important. It confronts the lie that all we need is one more whatever fill in the blank. Or all we need is so-and-so's approval. No, no. All we need is God the Father. Dad loves me. Dad loves you. There's a book that came out about 10 years ago. I love the title. It says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Isn't that a great book title? Look at this quote from the book. 
Whatever security, happiness, relief, rescue, affirmation, meaning, and sense of purpose we're privileged enough to experience, it still isn't enough. Something within us hungers for, for what we don't yet have. And whether or not we realize it, this drives our every pursuit. We crave the more, sometimes wildly and illogically, it seems, but consistently, recurrently. We'll try anything and everything to fill this vacuum that we don't even like. We abhor it. The younger son had this vacuum, and he spent everything that he had on vices. And then he comes to his senses, and I pray... I pray that that is happening for some of us on this journey. That we're discovering that something is missing, and it's in fact Jesus himself. There's a space there. Luke chapter 15, let's continue in our story. So he got up, the younger son, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. We're going to talk about that here in a second. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, here's the confession, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and let's, let's kill it. We're, we're not eating pork. We're going to dine on what God intended, beef here. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost, was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. He comes home and he gives his confession he makes a turn. We need to make a turn today. We need to quit blaming maybe our mom and our dad or our family of origin. We need to connect this with heavenly realities, the goodness of the Father and the things that he wants to do in you and through you. So the son, he makes his confession. He doesn't get exactly what he thought he would get. There's this picture that we see here of the Father. It's an amazing picture I told you there were four observations. Here's another one to write down. This one actually is a two-parter. This is a preacher trick. This is how I sneak an extra one in. It's actually five, not four. But God runs to the humble. You could restate it this way. God also receives the humble. That should be bonus preacher points because they both begin with an R. That's a, like an alliteration or something there. God runs to the humble and he receives the humility. Humility is not... You say something kind to me, and I say, oh, stop it. Stop it. Stop saying that. that. That's not humility. Humility is when we're able to articulate something about ourselves that's not flattering. And it's also when we're able to receive something about ourselves from God, from our Heavenly Father, that goes against the grain of our or maybe even other people's opinion of who we are. That's humility. The father has been scanning the horizon every day. He's been looking for the sun on that horizon. He knows his walk. The father knows the boy's gait because he watched him learn to walk when he was about nine months old. He knows exactly how he walks, and he's looking for him to come home. He's scanning the horizon. By the way, the text said the, the father, uh, the son went away to a foreign land. We talked about this this past week, if you were, or this past summer, if you were here for our Sermon on the Mount series, Sermon on the Plains series. There's the Sea of Galilee. There was the hand map that we worked through that, uh, this summer. And the, uh, the son is probably living on this side of the lake. To go to a foreign land, all he had to do was cross a lake, the Sea of Galilee. It's not big because they're eating pigs over here. By the way, 
archaeology, you know how they discover, was it a Jewish town or a Gentile town? They look for the evidence of pig bones. So really, it could have been just across the lake. It's possible that the father had sent spies. He was keeping tabs on the son. He was looking for him to come home. He knows his son. He's been looking for him to walk home. And then the text says he sees him and he runs. We have to contrast this with our heavenly father, with our earthly father. Most of us have never seen our dads run. Most of us have never seen, maybe other than a professional athlete like in the Olympics, we don't see anybody run. You don't go to the mall and see somebody running. Maybe they're mall walking. Maybe you see people jogging around your neighborhood. But full, dead, sprint, all out, run. We don't see that very often. When we do, we assume, oh, something's wrong, something's up, something's going on. The father, mm, it's humbling. It's humbling to run. And the father, it's probably weirder looking then than it is today. He would have had to hike up his robe and skinny legs just running after the son. The father knows you. He knows your walk. He knows how you sleep. This is the depth of how he knows you. The Bible says it this way, Psalm 139, you created me, I'm in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. He stitched together every strand of your DNA. Jesus talks about how the Father knows us in Luke chapter 12. Check this out. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows how much hair I have on my head. And if I comb my hair and I lose a few or if I pluck one out right now, he's keeping track. That's the depth to which our Father knows us. He knows how we walk. He knows how our DNA is stitched together. He to put this into contemporary language, he has your picture in his wallet. He loves you. He has your picture in his wallet. This is the picture of love in this story that Jesus has given to us. Two weeks ago, we read about the older brother's reaction. I, uh, I hear this myth sometimes. People will come to me and say, listen, don't all religions end up at God? I mean, isn't it just, you know, you just pick kind of what you want to believe. Jesus has very specific words to that. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. But that doesn't mean that not every, there are other spiritual traditions that pick up on some of these same themes. And actually they quote or maybe even misquote some of our best stories, including this one. I think this is a myth. When I hear that, I always think, you don't know my dad. You don't know my dad. Buddhism has a version of this younger brother coming home. It's a little bit different. It doesn't read so much like a story that Jesus would tell. Actually, it reads more like a story that the older brother in this story might tell. See if you can pick out some of the subtle differences here, or not so subtle. His father, beholding the son, was struck with compassion for him. This is from a Buddhist text. One day, he saw at a distance, through the window, his son's figure, haggard and drawn, lean and sorrowful, filthy and dirt with dirt and dust. He talk, took off his strings of jewels, his soft attire, and put on a coarse, torn, and heavy garment, smeared his body with dust. Isn't that interesting? He's doing like penance on behalf of his son. Took a basket in his right hand, and with an appearance fear-inspiring, said to the laborers, get on with your work, don't be lazy. By such means, he got near to his son, to whom he afterwards said, I Apparently, God in this story in Buddhism is a pirate. I, my man, you stay and work here. Do not leave again. I will increase your wages. Give whatever you need, 
bowls, rice, wheat flour, salt, vinegar, and so on. I'll boost your wages. You still have to earn my approval. Grace is missing from this story. This reads very different than the narrative that Jesus is sharing in Luke chapter 15. You still have to earn my grace. I'll just give you a little bit more wages. We know that story. That's the picture of the world. This is where I push back just a little bit on this this idea that we are in a Christian nation. We might have been at one point, but this sounds so familiar to me. This feels like the America that I've grown up in, that you've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that you need to get to work. You need to make something of yourself. You need to maybe even earn your way back to God. That's a myth. That is a lie. That's not Christianity. It's Buddhism. Back to the story in Luke. He doesn't say... Well, you have to work your way up. Maybe you you reincarnate to a better form. Maybe balance out the scales. You did some bad, now do some good. He doesn't say that. That's what pride says. Humility says, Dad, I messed up. God runs. He sprints toward the sun. He puts a robe on him. He puts shoes on his feet. Have you had this moment of compassion with God where he puts his arms around you and says, I love you. I love you the most. You heard Jimmy talk about this a bit ago. Can I underline this opportunity? Make sure you make your way this week to our prayer experience. It opens at 2 p.m. this afternoon and runs till 9 p.m. tonight. It's like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. all week long. Next Sunday it's open as well. Don't miss this opportunity. It's an opportunity to sit in the embrace of the Father. He loves me most and he loves you most. And he loves you most. Come and experience that. Feel that with your God. Well, Jesus is talking to some people who maybe haven't had this kind of an experience. The religious people. They're judgmental of the younger brother kind of people. There's a problem with the rule of three here, right? The religious people that are hearing this. There was a lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. They're not so much going out after the lost. The older brother's not. The older brother, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is physically around, but he's spiritually gone. The younger brother, well, is both physically and spiritually gone. Both of them are lost. Here's the deal. The younger son, the younger son is very relativistic. His circumstances, his proximity, this is how I know God loves me. The older son, he's moralistic. If I just do the right things, if I say the right things, then God will love me. But here's the deal. Neither of them are very realistic to the heart and the character of our God. When Jesus tells a parable, I think a lot of times people walk away chewing on it. Did he mean this? Am I the older brother? Yeah. But I think he also inserts himself, not maybe in this story, but elsewhere in Scripture, he compares himself to the older brother. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, this is what it says of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the firstborn. Luke chapter 19 says it this way. For the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, came to seek and to save that which was lost. The stories we're looking at. Turn the house upside down to find the lost coin. Leave the 99 sheep to go after the one. This is what Jesus is saying. He he left to go after those that were lost. And I would argue he left for both the younger brother and the older brother. Both of them are far from God in this story. How did he do this? 
Well, he lost his life to find ours. He emptied himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. On the cross, there's this transfer that happens, all my sin to his back. And then there's a transfer. It's so bizarre, it comes the other direction as well. Transferred from him, his righteousness gets transferred to me and transferred to you. Daddy loves me most. Daddy loves you most as well. Here's the deal. The firstborn of all creation, the older brother, Jesus Christ himself, went on a search and rescue mission at the Father's behest. Here's the third observation. Riches come at the expense of the firstborn, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus left heaven and went on a rescue mission for you and me. I was reading a story. I was reading a story the other day about uh, an older brother who left. He left and he went after his younger brother in the jungles of the Viet Cong. He sold everything. And he went after to redeem his younger brother. I think I've got a picture of this guy right here, Danny Dawson. Jesus left heaven, and he went after us to redeem us. This is how much Jesus loves us. Here's the third observation. Riches come at the expense of the firstborn. This is Jesus. Jesus went after us, and he did it with a vengeance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says it this way. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. By the way, adoption, every single person that has adopted, I talked about this last week, every person that's been adopted was adopted by the expense of the parent. When you're adopted into God's family, it costs God. Adoption expense, the firstborn over all creation. Back in the story, Luke chapter 15, my son, the father said, you're always with me. He's talking to the big brother and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Hear me, when you're in the family of God, there's an inheritance coming your way. When you've been adopted into God's family, there are things that you will experience that you wouldn't experience if you were oh, just a better version of yourself. But this inheritance, this inheritance, it's always preceded by a confession. We have to let go of something. The younger son in the story did that. He came to his senses and he said, I've sinned against heaven and earth. Go to my father and confess. Write this down. Those who return, here's the fourth observation, enjoy an inheritance. Those who come back home enjoy an inheritance. I want you to receive something today. I've been carrying this around on my neck. I don't want to make too much of this metaphor, but it's a key. What do you need to get in the home? Well, you, you need a key. The key, the key is confession. So we're going to have a moment here just in a moment for that. We're going to have a moment where we literally come to the altar to receive, well, that inheritance piece. To be reminded, perhaps, of how much Jesus did for us 
on the cross. And so I'm going to invite you here in just a moment. You're going to have a quiet moment in your seat. And those of you who are joining us online, you can join us from a distance as well. By the way, if you want one of these keys, email me. I'd love to send one to you. You're going to let go of something. You're going to confess. Maybe you want to just mutter underneath your breath something that you've been working on the last three weeks, something that you're going to leave behind. Maybe it's, God, I confess the lie that I thought I had to earn your approval. Or maybe it's confessing the lie that fear has been a way for me to control. I, I confess that I haven't really enjoyed my inheritance yet. Maybe it's I, I don't feel good about my life unless my net worth goes up. Maybe you need to confess, listen, it's hard for me to not always have a boyfriend or always have a girlfriend. I, I feel this compulsive need to have affirmation from sexual touch. I can't feel close to you, my God, because I'm chasing after the closeness in all the wrong directions. Maybe it's a confession that needs to be made just like I thought that my parents were holding out on me. God, I feel like, I feel like you're holding out on me as well. Whatever it is, confess it. Let go of it. Maybe even want to mutter that under your breath right where you're sitting. And leave those confessions. And as you came in, you probably noticed the communion elements that were on the seat. Go ahead and grab those now and pull those out. Look at them and recognize what those are. They literally symbolize the body of Jesus, the older brother, the firstborn over all creation. His body broken, his blood shed for you. After you confess, I would invite you to take that into your body. Be reminded of the cost at which your adoption was purchased. And then I would invite you, when you feel ready, come forward. We're singing a song, come to the altar, and I would just invite you to come forward and just pick out the key. There's some in the back as well for those of you who are sitting in the back of the room, but come forward and pick out the, tea, the key that you'd like and maybe keep it this week. Maybe you want to do what I did and tie it on a piece of paracord and keep it close to your heart. Maybe you want to just put it in your pocket and keep it close this week and be reminded of the truth that Daddy loves you. This past week, Wednesday, I had a lunch appointment. Local pastor here in the area, I was meeting him for lunch at the uh, McAllister's right over here on Allisonville Road. We had just sat down waiting for our food to arrive. We're sitting outside and we're kind of chit-chat, and all of a sudden he starts yelling over my left shoulder. I turn around, and there's a young lady who's frantic. Remember I said, if you see somebody running, something's up. Well, I could tell she wanted to run, but she was tethered here. She didn't want to leave her car. We ran over there. She wanted to borrow one of our phones. She got on the phone with 911, called the police, because here's what had happened. She had just locked her car, and her nine-week-old baby boy, Maxwell, was right there in the car. She'd just driven down from Fort Wayne. She was meeting a friend. She was kind of, you can imagine, any parent's worst nightmare. It was getting a little warm. I was wearing a shirt, two shirts like I'm wearing right now. I had a T-shirt on, took off the outer shirt, laid it over the back of the windshield because the sun was beating down on him and the police were on their way. And I was struck by the truth that Mama is standing right here. He's right here. They're less than a foot from each other, but he couldn't feel her presence. She was right there. Remember I said, a foreign country. It's just the other side of the lake. You don't have to go that far away. And the father is probably chasing the son. He sees him. He knows he's got people looking at him. Maybe you're the big brother. You're the older brother. And, oh, you're right here. But you feel far from God. This is a moment to confess, to let go of something, to receive grace, 
receive mercy? The police arrived. And two, man, their response time was amazing. Two of Carmel's finest showed up. And they're doing the thing where they push the doors out and they're fishing through. And I'm trying to help them get those doors open so mama can get into her baby. And all the time I kept thinking, all that's missing right here is a key. Just the key. Right now. Confession is the key for redemption. For grace. On your own, you take the time, confess something, be redeemed, come forward, pick out your own key. Let me pray for us. God, right now, you take this time, you do with it what you will. We lean into the opportunity as we confess, as we share it with you, what we're burdened with right now. We want to come home. <laughs>